thanks so much for tuning in for the first episode of Agnes by Alma. I'm Alma. I'm doing a podcast deep dive on the films of Agnes Varda, um, kind of trying to go roughly in chronological order through her films. Uh, she's been one of my favorite filmmakers and just human beings to have existed and created and felt like it was owing to really try to track her whole career and what exactly I love so much about it. So yeah, I'm excited to do this. I'm excited to have various friends come through to talk about her films on each episode. And today I have my dear friend, Jake Wilder Smith, joining to talk about her debut film, La Pointe Courte. So yeah, Jake, thanks so much for coming on. Hi, it's a pleasure. It's been really fun to return to this. Hell yeah. So to start out, maybe um, if you want to talk about just like how you came to Anya Svarda and sort of your history with her as an artist. Yeah, I came to Varda um, through a very scratched up DVD copy of Le Bonheur that was in Lamont Library. And I was really, what I remember being struck by was actually her pairing of music and image. So I had seen really just that that amazing shot of a sunflower flashing upon the screen very quickly, very rhythmically, um, against this Mozart fugue that's been scored for wind instruments. So that was actually where I started with Varda. And then it was kind of instantly jumping back. Um, so I discovered another scratch DVD copy, very well used, that I watched on my laptop of Le Pont Court, and I wouldn't see it in a theater on film until, would it be 2017 when, when Varda was here, or 2018? Yeah, when the HFA did their retrospective. Yeah, so that was, that was the next time I saw it um, at the Harvard Film Archive, um, I think shortly before we actually got to meet her outside of Sanders Theater uh, following her lecture. That was a nerve-wracking moment. <laughs> it was a terrifying moment. Uh, and she had just so much grace about it, which was kind of amazing. She like signed my drawing of a cat and walked away. <laughs> I, I don't know like, if yes. you remember, but I had I had taken a notebook with me, and my notebook, which I was just happening, I just happened to be carrying, um, has typed in it. I do not seek, I find, and she instantly recognized it, even translation, as Picasso. And then <laughs> she wrote beneath it, Picasso said it, and I say, okay. Agnes <laughs> Varda. Uh, which yes. is probably about, like, the best response to that that I could have imagined. Probably the greatest validation that Picasso could ever receive. I 100% agree. That's incredible. And I'm also glad to hear that uh, the Lamont Library DVDs of Agnes Varda's films were getting so much love. Yeah, me too. That's funny. I think my first Agnes Varda film was La Pointe Courte. And I came to her because I was working at um, the Brattle Theater. Shout out, Brattle Theater. Um, and a lot of my coworkers were really into Agnes Varda, and I had never heard of her. And they pointed that out as a fault and they were right <laughs> um and yeah and so I was like okay I'll check out like I think I got it from the Cambridge Public Library and I was like this is her first film so might as well start here and 
I feel like it's not generally recommended as like someone's first Anya Sparta film. I feel like usually people point to Cleo from five to seven, but every time I've returned to it, like I think watching it for this podcast is my third time and I just appreciate it more and more each time. So while initially perhaps it wasn't like the best first Anya Sparta experience, um, I have grown to feel like it is one of her best. I totally agree. And I feel like what I remember is that um, having watched, say, Le Bonheur or Cleo from 5 to 7, those films are pretty immediately seductive in terms of just your attention. And I think quite kind of very much in her own energy. This is not a film that seems to immediately invite you in. And I think of that that initial scene, one of the, the kind of the first the start of the narrative, um, the more documentary style narrative or the more kind of this, this towny narrative about the fishermen and this new regulation. And you see that, that guy who's an officer who is um, with the government, with the regulating forces, um, who's just waiting outside. And immediately this network of people steps in among the fishermen to let everyone know that the guy who's trying to get them in trouble is right there. Um, And it's a film that it's easy to feel like you're a little bit outside of its world at first. It feels like it's not necessarily immediately inviting you in. Um, But once you're inside it, it's kind of amazing what she has going on in terms of a visual language that's already there without her having made any feature-length films before. Um, A tremendously kind of generous um, and empathic gaze that's present throughout the film with both, you know, the pair of lovers or the married couple um, and the people of the town and all of the non-actors. Um, so it's it's a film that I really liked initially, but I also didn't feel like I fully got initially. And I feel like each time I watch it, it's that process of trying to figure out if you're on the periphery of it or if you're on the inside of it, if that makes sense. Completely, and I totally agree. And I feel like in those initial shots, it's sort of even just on an aesthetic level conveyed in that way, like where you're sort of moving past windows and just getting glimpses of people as they react to this man's presence. Anya Svarta came from a photography background, um, and this was her first film, and I think at that point she claims to like have never seen a movie <laughs> before, which feels potentially exaggerated, but those initial shots to me feel like her kind of rejoicing in what cinema can do that photography can't, namely move. And there's that like amazing shot of moving past the sheets hanging from the clothesline in the wind where it just feels like she's just reveling in that ability to like plumb the depths of an image. Absolutely. Those dolly shots are really striking. And um, in this past week, when watching La Pointe Court, I was also watching um, two of her short films that you recommended we watch, and I was noticing also almost a constant um, movement of the camera. 
um, in those movies. I really like thinking about it in terms of her photography because I think you're absolutely right that not only do we see the kind of training she had in photography and even some of the details of her own early photographs, but really what is most striking about uh, Le Pointe Court is, is the movement, the camera following some kind of line in space. Um, and I was struck by just kind of how encyclopedic her own um, creative kind of inventiveness is with those lines and following those different lines. You have the clothesline in the beginning, you have the net, you have the railroad, that beautiful shot. You have fences. There's always some kind of line that she's following. I'm, I'm curious, curious what kinds of things you were noticing about how the camera moves and when the camera moves. I guess I was more focused on marveling at like what is choreographed and what is just the best kind of chance that a filmmaker can have, um, which I feel like is, is Varda's magic kind of throughout her career. It's like she seems somehow susceptible to just all the stars aligning, um, where I'm like, she got the wind when she needed the wind. Like, can she talk to cats? Like, all of the cats in this movie move so perfectly for her shots. Yeah, it's the editing magic trick to make it seem like it's just an incredible coincidence um, that things move as they do in this film. But I really love what you're saying about lines. I think that's so true, and I hadn't really considered it in, in those terms. But especially... I don't want to jump around in her whole filmography that much, but like those sort of particularly like horizontal movements, like in Vagabond, Mm. um, the tracking shot of someone walking is so important in that film. And I feel like, I don't know, often like the exciting thing about watching a filmmaker you love's debut is just seeing like how early some of their ideas were like already present. And I feel like for Varda, like it's, it's kind of all there in this film. I totally agree. And I think you mentioned cats, and that's one of the things that I immediately and, and pretty joyously was noticing rewatching the film was just like how many cats there are. Um, and I hopefully this isn't pushing it, but um, when you were speaking, I was thinking back to um, Picasso said it, and I say, okay, I do not seek, I find. And it, this does seem like it's a movie about finding those kinds of filmic moments. There's the shot of the net and the cat who's just like tangled up in it and having the best time. Uh, and it feels like that's, you know, that's a found shot rather than a constructed or a, a sought shot. She is definitely someone who is constantly finding things. I mean, I even think her last films seem like they're all about that and um, her turn to video. Again, not to go too far outside of um, Le Pont Court today, but that sense of feeling very okay with, you know, getting in a car with JR and going to towns and, and finding things. Um, it feels like that, that part of her spirit, of her creative spirit, is so present in Le Pont Court, and it's really, really kind of amazing to see it. Totally. Maybe we can talk about some of the more, like, constructed elements like namely the the central couple when I first watched it that was the part that I at least initially felt like it was sort of ponderous in the way that Mm -hmm. 
French cinema can get a bad rap to, to be. Um, and this time I didn't feel that way at all. And I felt like for a first film, La Pointe Court has a remarkable amount to say about death. Yeah. There's the scene in the boat, which first of all, how beautiful that whole sequence is. That um, scene reminds me a lot of um, Through a Glass Darkly, that, that Bergman film, which also has um, that final scene in, in the cavity of a boat. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to send you a, a guest still so you can okay, see. Okay, please. Is that, does that predate or after? Oof, uh, that's a good question. Magic of podcast editing. Let's look it up real quick. Yeah, let's look it up. 61. Okay, so on the punk courts first. Fuck you, Bergman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that scene, uh, I think there's a line where he says... Tu y viendras la détester. Ici, quand on dit il est bien fatigué, ça veut dire... When they say in this town that he's very tired, what they really mean is that he's going to die. Hearing that line, and that's like maybe two-thirds of the way into the film, and then in both halves of the story, the, the central couple and these portraits of the townspeople, both fatigue and death have come up a lot. Um, like there's the kind of very brief scene where the young fisher who gets arrested at a certain point in the film um, is talking about this young woman he wants to propose to and he says like oh, he asks her do you want to get married and she says oh I'm just tired yeah that's and exactly then, where I, I was I was thinking too that scene between Raphael and Anna yeah thank you for remembering their names um, exactly and like and then just throughout the film like you see cats napping and then you see like a dead cat and it just feels like there's this really interesting relationship with tiredness and death in this film that I this is the first time I was really picking up on it absolutely and it also um reflects the death of a romantic relationship in the forms of grieving um that language of grief is certainly um very present in their conversations the couple's conversations in the Pont court but also huge in in Cleo and Le Bonheur um, so it is, it is interesting also just the ways in which, um, literal death and the death of a relationship or these kinds of more spiritual questions of what, what death could be are constantly, you know, put into a kind of counterpoint in her films. Completely. Yeah. And also I, I realized I probably forgot the most central example, which is the young boy dying of the the mother of many children. Um, and you get that really haunting scene of her by the coffin. Yeah, I was, I've, I mean, I'm always struck by that and always a bit surprised by it. Um, hmm. How so? Because I feel like it's, it's the kind of episode that in another film would be the kind of focal point where all of the attention is. And in this film, it's it's more or less in the center. It's it's quite short. It doesn't come up again. We don't see a big procession. We don't see it impact, you know, the dance at the end. There's a way in which in this film things happen and uh, things don't really change. Um, and that death, which is just just brutal um, when you're watching it, uh, when you're in the middle of it, quickly fades away. Um, 
in a way that is is a little challenging. I think it's one of the kind of difficulties of this film, but it it makes me think a lot about Bruegel um, and his paintings and Varda's love for a lot of those kind of old master landscape painters and that idea of the tragic and the comic being on one canvas um, also feels like one of the structuring devices of this film. Completely. Because I think shortly after the death of the boy, we get the jousting sequence, which like the transformation of that town in my head, I'm like, I know it's probably like a pretty small fishing village. And yet Varda finds like so much to look at, so much to show that it feels like almost infinite in a way. And then the transformation of that space for the jousting competition is so insane to me. Yeah, it's, <laughs> like, it's uh, especially coming that late in the movie. Uh, okay. It's very striking. One thing that I was thinking about in the kind of suddenness of that jousting match and the complete shift in terms of light, in terms of filming style, in terms of what kinds of movement we see on screen, um, the other shift is that her facial expressions, Sylvia Montfort playing um, playing the, the female half of the couple, um, she just, her, her face is literally just lifted. Um, and there's there are really strange things that are happening interpersonally between them during that. Um, I was curious, I, something I was noticing with the renewed attention this time was the ice cream episode. Yeah. And I was curious what you thought of that or, or what you noticed. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because he, at least in that ice cream moment, is quite heavy where he assumes that she's just left. She's disappeared without a word um, when, she, in fact, she's just gone to get ice cream. And I love that whole moment because you can see her look at the kids' ice cream and I could see her make the decision to buy an ice cream. But I can also see him not seeing her do that. Um, and, yeah, it just unfolds so beautifully. Him thinking that when she goes to get the ice cream that she's, in fact, left him. Um that feels like one of one of the things we've been thinking about with the film, which is that things can just disappear. Things can be there, and then they're not there. The kid who has a fever for the first time and has never been sick, and suddenly he's just gone. And the rest of the kids are just trying to figure that out. I'm interested, too, because like the, the scene after the jousting, when they're sitting, and she seems much happier, and she's like, oh, it's you I love, it's not the relationship in the abstract... And he's sort of like, yeah, you you need to think about that every time you, like, get mad at me or something. C'était notre amour que tu aimais, ce n'était pas moi. C'est toi que je vais aimer. Natif de la pointe courte, fils d'un charpentier de marine, amateur de joute et de soleil. <laughs> bon, ah bon. Tu ne pourras plus rien me reprocher, tu ne pourras plus rien me demander sans penser à tout cela. It's a really strange shift, and that line is very odd. Like, every time you scold me, you'll have to think back to, like, now you know where I've come from. The need to go back to a kind of origin, or the need to... Wow. The fact that he's returned to the town after more than a decade, and the fact that he wants her to come there. Why, why that was um, such an important aspect of that, that turn that you're recognizing between them 
where suddenly she says, oh, I know who you are now. You're the, you're the son of a shipbuilder. Um, and that, that's somehow the turn in terms of not, you know, the kind of exactly the heady French um, in love with love itself um, kind of uh, relationship that they are both kind of carrying out and critiquing earlier in the film, that suddenly the fact that she knows he's the son of a shipbuilder um, from the Pont Court um, is so important. Yeah. And we never really get her origin, save for in the hull of the ship when she says, you know, I was raised in Paris with hustle and bustle. Right. Accents are one of the key identifying characteristics when they arrive at um, his family member's house where they're staying. Uh, immediately, uh, they know that, that she's Parisian um, because right. she doesn't speak the same way. Um, so there is a, there's, a, in, there's of course, in their conversations, there's all that talk about noise. Uh, she's a lot of attention to sound here for something that is visually so brilliant and ha- so complex in terms of each shot. Um, I was I was thinking a lot about the fact that the kind of everything that he says about her, everything that she reflects on herself, is about creating noise or a relationship um, somehow um, having its own kind of white noise attached to it which you're either editing out or um, being forced to listen to. Yeah, she has that great line of, I came here to make noise, but silence has won out or something like that. And it's interesting because I think this film was not filmed with sync sound. And so all the sound was added later. I agree that sound is so important in this film. And like, especially there's a point about halfway through the film where again, there feels like another shift in the sound where it gets a little more like I don't know if experimental is the word um but I'm thinking of the scene it's just a series of shots like observational shots um one is a man shaving and he like cuts his cheek and then it cuts to an eel in a bucket and then it cuts to the kids like dangling upside down from the table um and I think, at least with the kids dangling upside down on the table, there's absolutely no sound at all. But then one of them drops, and like as soon as he hits the ground, the little kids' like screams just sort of erupt forth. And it seemed like way more intentional than what at least struck me in the first half as like a, a kind of more naturalistic adherence to like what sound would be. Absolutely. And those, that constant movement between the town and the couple, um, it seems like the scenes with the couple seem like one of the main places where Varda is developing and shifting both the visual and the sonic language of the film. Um, Because I remember one of the shots that I was most struck by is toward the end of the film, and there's a barge um, that's going out an angle into the water. And there's, they're sitting on either side of a boat and they get up and they start walking and they're continuing their conversation. But as they go out, their voices are just as loud. You can very much tell that it's not sync sound um, because there's a kind of presence there and what you can hear of their voices that doesn't match the growing distance um, spatially they are from the camera. Um, that line about, she came here to make noise, um, but silence went over 
is a kind of ironic one. I remember feeling a little bit that way because all they do is talk the whole film or that that's their role is their constant conversation. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so there's, there's an interesting way for me in which there's, there's so much experimentation with the couple. And then I think it almost starts to infect the visual language of the more documentary aspects of the film, or at least there's not, um, as some people have described this film as kind of having a rigid stylistic difference between the two. I actually think well, what you're saying brings out the fact that there's there's actually there's something more relational about how these two halves interact um, and when they cross over and when certain visual language from the town seems to set up the staging of a conversation um, are some of the most interesting choices that Varda makes here. I wanted to make sure that I brought up Wild Palms. I'm about 50 pages in at the moment. Really enjoying so far. True. Yeah, um, Faulkner's Wild Palms is a novel that I came to because of, mostly because of the Pont Court, which Varda, um, she was drawn to its form or the kind of um, formal structure that Faulkner uses, which he um, moves between these two different stories, which there's not kind of a moment where they converge or where everything comes together. They're kept entirely separate um, throughout. So each chapter moves between these two narratives. And one is a love story, a fraught love story. Uh, and the other is the story of two men who accidentally escape from prison in the midst of a flood. Um, and what's really interesting is that Faulkner was trying to create something like a counterpoint um, between the two in that he really wanted something that was unrelated but seemed to create kind of interesting relationships between the two narratives. And I think it's really helpful for me at least to think about Lapointe Court through that in that we have these, we have this kind of rhythmic undulation between these two different stories um, but they never come together, and that's part of the beauty of it. We see, you know, the figures passing through. We see them at the jousting, the two lovers, the married couple. Um, but I don't get the sense that they're speaking directly to one another, the two different stories. And I think that is a brilliant and radical thing that that Varda did in the Pont Court, which was she realized that film is one of the mediums most connected to music in the sense of what has come before is, is always affecting how we hear, how we see what comes next. So there's constantly that kind of superimposition. We can't um, not think about the couple while we're watching the documentary sequences in the Pont Court. What are your first impressions? I love it. I mean, it's my first Faulkner. Um... I had tried reading Sound and the Fury on a plane once and it made me feel really nauseous, so I stopped. I can totally imagine um, that. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I don't think I have a full sense of the interplay that you're talking about yet. But I definitely see a lot of influence on the Pond Court beyond just the formal elements. In the book, they talk about even though they have, they live so close to the water, they have a taste for canned sardines. <laughs> Yeah, it just reminded me a lot of Lapointe Court. I think one of the most vivid parts of that film that lives in my head is all of the fish imagery of it, of just like eels in a bucket or mm -hmm. crabs slinking into the sea. Um, 
which is, is giving me the same smell in my nostrils. I totally know what you mean. There's something um, very saline <laughs> about, yeah. um, about both. Um, you brought up the cats earlier, and Varda's relationship with cats is, I think, one of her uh, most loved traits in both her documentary and her uh, fictional projects and everything Definitely. in between. Um, and you mentioned them earlier, so I'm, I'm curious about um, what you are noticing with cats or what you think um, cats seem to do in this film or what kind of um, attention she has to them. As, as someone who I know is a cat lover, I'd be curious to hear. Oh yeah, I'm all about the cats. Um, yeah, I actually, I, I wrote this down in my notes and I like don't have much else written backing it up, but I felt a certain alignment of the cats and the women of the town. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I'll say that, that there's that fantastic scene where there's that beautiful black cat who comes up to the two women who are sorting the shellfish and the woman notices that she's pregnant again, the cat That's already. Right. And then she immediately goes to, um, or thinks of or compares the cat to the woman in the town who's always getting pregnant and whose son dies later, um, but who has the seven kids, each from a different father, um, which is a kind of, it actually surprised me going back to it because it's a kind of, um, feels like a bit of a trope. Um, but I think what Varda does with it is very interesting. So that connection between the cats and the women of the town um, makes complete sense to me. Yeah, and in fact, thanks for bringing up that scene. I think that's what initially planted the seed in my head of that comparison of that uh, pregnant cat and pregnant woman. Um, yeah, and like also just these images of cats in nets and sort of this like feeling of trappedness that I felt like was reflected in the woman of the relationship when she's talking about sort of the relationship being tired or dead, or at least like the sort of ardent phase of it, I think is when we get the, the dead body of the cat in the water. Um, so I just felt like always these sort of female characters or their perspectives are being externalized in the form of cats I see that. I uh, we've we've been bringing up a lot that that one image of the cat wrapped up in netting, um, and you described it as trapped, which I think absolutely. Um, there's an interesting kind of connection between the cat being trapped, but also playing, um, and the couple. That seems to be something they do a lot. I mean, part of what for me makes all of their constant conversation, all of their constant autopsy of their relationship. Part of what makes it work for me is that they feel very trapped with each other. Um, and they say later in the movie, it's good to know what you've lost your youth for, um, which is each other. They've stolen each other's souls. But there's a sense that the kind of the, their enmeshedness with each other is also a form of play. These these kinds of constant conversations, these perambulations around um, their love and their relationship and the possibilities or failures of, of both um, is both being trapped in this relationship and, and having a kind of... It, it also feels like a kind of play or there's something um, 
that feels almost, um, yeah, almost like a game between them, a kind of verbal game between them. There is that sense of play. Like there's the great shot of them running on top of the like castle wall or whatever it is, sort of looking up of them. And it's like one of the most joyous moments of the film where it feels like they're very much sort of on an even plane and just like enjoying that together. You were sending me back to a moment shortly before the jousting scene um, when she is walking along the beach with him and she finds one of these artifacts that we see throughout the film. Um, yes. And it's, it's like a, some kind of fishing tool. It's round. It kind of looks like, you know, it could be a giant representation of a lens. There are a few, few things where we have things that look kind of like an aperture in the film. Oh, wow. And she pulls it up and he has a, a moment of recognition that's really striking. Um, reminds me of her seeing the ice cream and having that moment that you mentioned of being able to see her form that idea. And it seems like they're about to come together. Um, and she throws it into the ocean. Looking at it again this past week, Varda has kind of a brilliant attention to those the minutiae of relational disconnection. Um, and for me, the other moment is when he passes off the ice cream cone um, and fully okay. rejects that um, that gesture. And there are a few ways in which they seem to reject, I mean, I guess throughout the film, they are playing with rejecting one another or distancing themselves from one another um, in ways that Varda captures with just a, a kind of fine-tuned detail that I haven't seen, those, those little moments of relational disconnect that are a part of loving another person. Okay, I have a question for you. Yeah, yeah. One thing that we were discussing in the past week was the music that she uses in some of these early short films. And I was curious what you made of the music in Le Pont Court, um, which is has always struck me as unusual. You know, again, if we were talking in the beginning about Cleo as a film that's pretty immediately inviting um, and almost seductive, and I think the music for me is part of that. And I think the music in this film is really amazing too. But it's, uh, it also strikes me as difficult. And I was curious, just curious what you thought about it or how it struck your ear. Yeah, it's not the, the Michelle Legrand bangers that come <laughs> no. later. Um, yeah, I, I also love the music in this film, the sort of meandering clarinets. And I, is it true? Like, it seemed to me that it only came during the couple's segments of the films. Almost. It's certainly, that's the first entrance. There are a few, um, there are a few cues that I noticed just paying special attention to the music the last time I watched it. Um, but yeah, that kind of fugue, that abstract, um, slightly atonal, um, clarinet, and then a second clarinet coming in with a repetition of the first clarinet's theme uh, that is only introduced when the couple um, comes on screen okay 
Okay, cool. Because that always seemed very tied to their whole dance or conversation or whatever you want to call it. Sort of these two clarinets in counterpoint to each other. And then there's like also the local airs, I think as they're called in the credits, which I love, um, which feel much more tied to the the village um, that we get in the opening credits and also in the party scene. I was thinking about that and noticing that this time around, because as you're watching the opening credits, you don't necessarily know what you're hearing. You have those title cards that are um, written on the grain of wood, and then it is the same music that we hear um, and suddenly see at the very end of the film. So there's an interesting way in which like, what we only hear at the start of the film is suddenly visualized at the party, um, but it also gives the film an interesting kind of cyclicality or feels like it has a um, surprisingly circular structure where pretty much everything that was in question at the start, um, one of which is the fishing regulations, right? This internal town drama over where they are allowed to fish, um, what the bacteria level is in the water. um, That is not resolved by the end. Um, It seems as though they're is in fact bacteria in the water from the second lab they send things to and they're going to be encountering the same problems um, going forward and I feel the same way about the relationship that even though we've seen some kind of um, some kind of change or at least the glimmer of it they're really in a a fairly similar state um, at the start of the film and at the end yeah and in fact the I think the penultimate shot like another striking moment of sound that I had never noticed before. Um, it's when the people get into the boats and they go off, um, notably motor boats, which I guess were like new and rad at the time. Um, they go off and you see the train crossing um, in the distance. And I think the sound is actually of people on the train, even though you're closer to and have been following the people on the boats. I think there's a switch there. Hmm. Um, because I, you hear a woman and I'm not positive if it's the woman and the couple or not, but you just hear a woman say like, Oh, when are we going to get to Paris? And that makes me feel like it's the train and not the boats. Um, and so there's this feeling of potentially this couple departing again for Paris. And like you're saying, like not being in a totally different spot and just sort of moving on. And then there's the button of the film of the, the musicians playing their little ditty right right and there is a kind of relationship between that music that's at the start and the end which has um more local um and in in a lot of ways more ancient um instruments and but there is a connection between wind instruments in that film um in in the one court um where we have that more kind of modernist composition that is introduced when to introduce this very modernist existentialist conversation between the two of them about love and the nature of human relationship it seems to connect to the modern world um, encroaching upon this small town and their ideals and their world 
certainly the jousting scene um, always reminds me of that. And it's it's interesting that that's the moment in which the the woman and the couple suddenly understands the town is when they it's it's really the most performative aspect right of of the townspeople's lives at least as they're pictured here um i guess the local dance is is one other example of that but the very fact of this um ancient tradition that's being carried on um and that's being performed um, within the town and for the town and by each generation of the town as a kind of way of, of stating who you are and, you know, whether you're uh, equipped to marry um, one of the local daughters or not. Um, so it's interesting that she's so attracted to that um, ancient aspect, that kind of old way of living from day to day. Yeah, perhaps it's because it's so contrary to what she's known in her own past. And interesting that I think that the jousting competition still goes on in set, largely in part like because of this movie. So it's just this interesting lens also to feel like the, Varda then like also gravitated toward those ancient aspects of this town and through her filmmaking. And that she was preserving them, yeah, Captain this Lyon. time. What were your thoughts about class relations in the film? Because certainly this couple is staging a kind of class conflict between, uh, you know, a bourgeois Parisian and the son of a shipbuilder. I also find that she looks so hip and, and modern. She brings a sense of um, modern fashion into the film, uh, whereas the male half of the couple, he does look to me like something out of one of these old masters' um, paintings. Like, everything about his... His weird haircut, um, those those bangs, which um, hey, bowl cuts are are back. <laughs> He's just way ahead of his time. <laughs> Even his his clothing, um, he looks like he could belong in a monastery or something. Um, so I, there's something that strikes me about him as somehow also kind of old. Um, and and ancient in a way that matches matches the town. I remember also reading that some critics, like after this movie came out, identified him as belonging to the material of wood, whereas she belongs to metal, <laughs> which I found really interesting. And I feel like I was sort of keeping that in mind as I was watching. And indeed, there are scenes where it's very stark in the imagery, like toward the beginning when someone is like sanding the skeleton of a boat. And uh, he stands by the raw wood that's being used for that. And she stands by this, like, really intense industrial-looking, like, piece of machinery. I don't even know what it is. It's got these, like, crazy gears. Um, and it feels like she's very, like, kind of bringing this modern, both, like, in industry and, I think, yeah, in fashion, the way she speaks, all of the things that are contrary to her husband. Absolutely, and you're reminding me of their first real shot together. Not only are they kind of up to their knees in these tall grasses that are have grown over the train tracks, but in the back we have these tall metal structures. Um, cool. So it does feel like she brings with her a lot of this industrial language that is contrary to the like very old um, fishing practices that we see. And also think there's a relationship 
with the main male character and the nets too. So wood and also these things that are made by hand. Um, I think that's where we first see him is he's, he's calling to someone on a boat, but we also see, see, uh, I think kids repairing a net. I could, I could be wrong about that. Um, but that's really interesting between metal and, and wood. Yeah. And I think the the very first time we see him is when he's weaving in and out behind these sheets that are hanging to dry, which also feels like a very old fashioned image of these women with the clothespins that Varda spends a lot of time with, um, you know, just hanging things to dry in the wind. There's lovely attention to their hands. Um, it's one of my favorite, favorite moments is when we have the close up of them, uh, clipping and unclipping those white sheets. Yeah, I literally wrote that down. I was like, I'm really loving these shots of unclasping clothespins. What did you think? I mean, the the clothesline is such a dominant um, image in this film. There does seem like there's an emphasis on um, the female in certain of those moments and the degree to which these women are making this world. Um, one thing I was struck by shortly before those beautiful shots of their hands clipping and unclipping is that there's one shot where one of these white sheets almost fills up the screen. And I suddenly saw it as some kind of screen, I guess. Suddenly, suddenly it looked like a screen that could be projected upon. And they seem suddenly to have some kind of visual rhyme with a movie theater screen. There's also kind of a sense of, well, both the kind of artifice of, of it all, the fact that it's really just cloth and wavering, but also the fact that, that the women are the ones in the town who are staging this. It is astonishing, like, some of the kind of, um, the back-rooted diplomacy um, that is involved, say, with Raphael and Anna, that teenage love story that we see earlier on where it's it's clearly in a kind of patriarchal town it's the father's decision to say you know yay or nay in terms of Raphael pursuing his daughter um but it's really the women who are the turning point in terms of that decision or it's it's their kind of emphasis on their own experience that comes into play yeah the woman who's been cast as this senile old woman remembers like that it was a woman who made that decision the previous generation um and then there's the other woman who has my favorite line of the film which is de leur âge de commencer nous on a déjà chié la moitié de notre merde we've already shit half our crap that is an amazing <laughs> so line. good i would say i mean i i wasn't as tuned into the sheets as symbols i really just felt like if I went to La Pointe Court, like, it must look like that. There just must be sheets hanging to dry all the time. It's, for me, it's kind of like the cats, um, or what you were saying earlier about the cats. The corpse of the cat that we see is real, um, and clearly one of these found images, but it also seems to affect how we hear the conversation that's overlaid on that image. And I feel the same way about the sheets, in that it doesn't feel like I, I wouldn't even quite call them a symbol um, because I don't think meaning is necessarily being kind of projected upon them, but there's a kind of natural way of rhyming that a lot of 
Varda's images seem to do in that they or they have a quality in which they seem to rhyme with other things whether they're film related or not and I actually think of um, there's that Godard film and I think he actually takes a lot from Varda Band of Outsiders where they they they're in a I think it's like a kind of abandoned car lot or it's one of these kind of industrial spaces and there are these giant spool-like structures that really look like film reels. Um, And it's impossible not to think that they look like giant film reels that these characters are all walking within. And like, it's probably worth mentioning that this film is pointed to as one of the first, if not the first, of the French New Wave. It was screened in a very small venue, I think, for a short amount of time, but that it was seen by Godard and Truffaut and a lot of the figures who are sort of the big names of the French New Wave. Um, maybe we can transition to briefly talking about the, the shorts that we watched. So, Au Saison au Chateau and Du Côté de la Côte were made in 57 and 58, so just a couple years after La Pointe Court, and they were made for French Tourism Board. They were commissioned, um, with Au Saison au Chateau being about the Loire Valley and du Côté de la Côte being about the Côte d'Azur. Yeah, what do you think? It was really fun to watch them thinking about Le Pointe Court at the same time. I enjoyed them both, and it also made me nostalgic for a time when tourism films would be made by <laughs> Agnes Varda. Yeah. Because they're so brilliant and they're so wacky. You know, imagining if we gave some of our contemporary filmmakers the license to make some of these, like, see California or see New York. It it could be really interesting. Um, I was sort of wondering, sorry, before you continue, I was wondering about the context, like, when when would these be screened? Like, if I walked into a travel agency in the late 50s wanting to go to the Loire Valley, would they be like, okay, sit down and watch this, like, half an hour Anya Sparta film? That's a really good question. Um, I want, I don't know. Uh, what I imagine, though, is that these were the kinds of short films which would precede a feature in a movie theater. So I'm guessing these are kinds sense. of like the infomercials of the day. Okay, yeah, I was just curious. <laughs> anyway, please continue. I was, I was really struck by, well, a few things. Au Saison was, was new to me, and I was struck by the role of poetry in it. Je voudrais bien, richement jaunissant, en pluie d'or goutte à goutte, descendre dans le giron de ma belle cassandre, l'or qu'en ses yeux le somme va glissant. And one thing I noticed was that it reminded me a little bit of Le Pont Court, and I think it's what you were talking about earlier, which is this shift between registers, where suddenly we go from the more quotidian, um, the local politics in Le Point Court into these very existentialist dialogues between the two lovers about love, about the death of relationships, about what it means to love another person. Um, and I felt similarly that there's, there's kind of a f- fun and interesting and very characteristically Varda uh, movement between the poetic, you know, the, the poetic of that time, too, is so intense. Um, the intensity of these 
uh, unrequited love situations um, that all of these poets got into, um, and the more quotidian life of upkeep and the kind of privileged way in which she treats the um, the housekeepers and the groundskeepers and the people who are actually making these buildings and these grounds live and sustaining them even now. Absolutely. These were both, both the shorts were first time watches for me and particularly Ossison Chateau that really struck me exactly what you're saying and how she put the poetry of these great writers on the same plane as the words of the gardeners. They just felt in conversation in the way that she edited it together and that allowed for this really amazing collapsation of time, almost, where it's like, okay, we've got these 1957's groundskeepers speaking with these poets. And in that way, then she can have all the play in the world if that time has collapsed and she can populate these chateaux with the models. And it just becomes an infinite playing ground for her in ways I found like so delightful. Yeah, and it's uh, what you're describing as kind of the... the the weird simultaneity between the past that she's talking about and the current lives of all of these different estates. Um, it's something that she's able to do so well, like the brilliance of bringing in those um, fashion models who really stick out. And then the much, the much more monotone clothing of the groundskeepers. They're both treated with a kind of equal attention, maybe not an equal sense of comedy. I think think the models are, are poked fun at um though like with a with her characteristic generosity and it seems like part part of what she's interested in these spaces are that we so often think of them as the places where this or that royal family went to stay um but she's interested in the people who are there when they weren't there right the people who are actually taking care of these regularly and seeing these as the playgrounds of the the more working class people who are actually sustaining the beauty of of those surroundings. Yeah, and in, in through doing that having a much more profound perspective on that history, it seems. Absolutely. And I I'm curious what you think about the historical with Varda. She's not someone I necessarily think about as a historical filmmaker, but your comment there allows me to to see how often she's interested in the past lives of different places or post-war Europe is certainly in there, um, even though she's not usually interested in uh, recreating a past. And the one example I can think of, to the contrary, is um, her film about Jacques Demy uh, and some of those recreated kind of imagined scenes of him as a child um, but those are so kind of personally resonant um, rather than historically resonant. So I'm, I'm interested in the trilogy of films that we're thinking about or the, you know, the arbitrary um, or chronological trilogy that we're thinking about of those two shorts in the Pont Court. Um, the fact that, that history um, and European history seems like it's, it is always there, even if it's something that's not explicitly um, thematized in any of them. Yeah. In all of these films, I just feel like, in all of her films generally, it's just she's so interested in people and through people can access histories. The restaging of, um, at the end of Au Saison, of Sifé, I think that's his name, who like made the <laughs> ruins 
just to look at the water. I don't know. And like, she just had this sort of faceless man in the big poofy collar wandering these ruins. It's just, it's so awesome. Like, it's just, it's exactly what she would gravitate toward is like the person who would do that. And it feels like that's sort of the, the centerpiece grounding these histories. Absolutely. And there's a real focus in, especially Au Saison and the Pointe Court, on skills that are handed down familially. The groundskeepers, there's that great shot. Voici la famille de Chambord, branche gardienne. It's a close-up on a photograph of the, the extended family in charge of taking care of the estate, and then suddenly a zoom back, and you see the person carrying on that tradition holding the photograph, and then he walks off screen um, quite proudly. Um, so I was struck by that, especially because Varda is someone who is seeing the world through photography at first and then through film, when both of those mediums are still you know, fairly new, not things that have the kind of history to have been passed on from one person to the next uh, when she's making these films. Um, so it's interesting that she has such interest on passing down, you know, whether it's jousting or the kinds of dances or songs that they know by heart or um, how to repair a fishing net or build a boat. Yeah, definitely. As far as her own filmmaking and the sort of the much younger history behind that when she was making it and especially if she indeed had not seen any or many films prior to making the point court what's so cool about Anya Svarta is I feel like she just sees all of these disciplines as very interrelated where there still feels like there's a lot of history behind these early works because she's sort of expanding upon these poems intercutting between a poem and a gardener describing the different loves that the various mazes represent. It all feels like one massive poem. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting that she titles the film Au Saison, Au Chateau, after Rimbaud, who is one of those poetic figures who is seen as kind of a break from the past, as like a sudden kind of revolutionary turn against... Um, what was happening in poetry before him. Um, so she is someone who seems to value making the connection rather than seeing a kind of break between the past and the present, that she's interested in the kinds of overlap that structures like a town, that she's attracted to those spaces that seem to have an overlap of ancient practices that are passed on, and at the same time, modernity creeping in and becoming a part of part of those lives. Yeah, two thoughts in response to that. One is that in Au Saison Chateau, the use of jazz feels very relevant to that as well. over the score of that film earlier this week. The amazing opening sequence of sort of gardening as jazz <laughs> um, it seems very tied to that. I totally agree. To have that kind of jazz um, suddenly playing over the rhythms of them getting to work 
is pretty amazing. I was also checking out that composer, and he had kind of an interesting career of his own. He Not too long after he was composing for a few different films, he also acted in um, various Rene films that surprised me. Um, Whoa. <laughs> so they, they must have been part of that kind of left bank circle. But he also wrote a kind of jazz opera um, on James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, which I was listening to, and which is completely wild, um, completely modern um, in the sense of modernist. So there's a lot of just kind of um, jazz harmony and vocal acrobatics. Damn, I'm going to check that out. That sounds wild. Yeah, released in 1966 on vinyl. Um, I'm, I'm really curious who that audience was and what the performance <laughs> history is. Uh, it's, it's a pretty cool thing. It hasn't had an audience until right now. I think that's possible. <laughs> We're going to popularize it right here yeah. right now. <laughs> the other thing I was going to say in response to what you were recognizing as sort of this focus on tradition and history and like passing down of skill and the people that occupy a space over long stretches of time is that in Du Côté de la Côte there seems to be like an outright rejection of that of the three films this one felt very different to me where I was even questioning having asked you to watch it for this episode you had texted me I, I think that you had a kind of ghostly sense of it and I was curious to hear more about uh, like what what you thought was ghostly in it? I think I know what you mean. I think I think the word I used was nightmarish, um, which I did find it super nightmarish. And like I feel like she had a disdain for that place <laughs> that was very apparent to me in the film. Whereas Au Saison au Chateau did the job that the tourism board probably wanted, which was I watched it and I was like, ooh, I really want to go there. Uh, I, like, don't want to go to Cannes or any of the places depicted in Du Côté de la Côte. When I meant by, like, outward rejection of what you were talking about in the other two is that she even says, we can focus on the locals who are envisioned as, like, old and friendly, but we'll leave them and really focus on the crowd and the tourists. And that's sort of what the film is about, is those that just come temporarily uh, and then it seemed just so such a nightmarish vision of like tourism and consumption of celebrity of food, and it sort of culminates in that crazy festival parade thing. And even the paper mache mascots are in yellow and blue, which are like the colors of the day. And like her sort of identifying its obsession with the ideal and Eden, but it really not being accessible. It just looked like a terrible place, to be honest. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, so you're, you're talking about the scene where we have Eden keeps on coming up, but suddenly we have all of the Eden gardens. We're in them and then the gates close on the viewer. And uh -huh. it's no, this is this is kept out. Yeah. For me, I mean, it's it's interesting just talking about this with you now, thinking that in, in my head, your nightmarish got translated into ghostly. And I think it's that I was especially drawn to the images of an empty beach and all of those umbrellas without anyone underneath them. The coast is a place that is suddenly packed in balloons with people and then it, it dies. It has this kind of cycle of rebirth and death 
um, because it's really an invented place, like all of those invented Edens. Um, so for me, there was, and I, I think this comes back to what you were saying, Alma, earlier about how omnipresent death is in all kinds of interesting ways in Varda's films, even looking back. There's, there's a weird presence of something kind of deathly. And it's not only the sense that the coast is something that comes alive in the summer and dies in the winter, but there's something kind of dark about a lot of, even the kind of the carnival, the kind of Dionysian like display of out of control euphoria with those giant heads. There's the sense that, you know, as kind of packed as those beaches are, there's something ultimately empty about them and the people that are there. Completely. And she even ties those tourists to the dead. They're trying to get their plot of land on the beach to suntan, and they're trying to get their plot of land for their grave, and there's sort of an equation there that even celebrities dead and gone have their public, and there's that like crazy shot of a dog gnawing on a skeleton. It's a very dark movie. <laughs> it is dark, and, and honestly, I totally forgotten that line so I'm so glad you remembered it and brought it up yeah that's that's a pretty dark view of yeah. uh, the French coast totally she does say like Eden does exist and it's a sunrise L'Eden exists c'est une aube L'Eden exists c'est une île And she has a sort of sequence that's probably the, the quietest of the film of sort of her vision of Eden in this place. And it's completely devoid of people. Like it has an almost post-apocalyptic sense of like the rapture or something like empty towels and empty shoes left behind. I'm, I'm fascinated by your read on that. And it's also making me think of the coast for Varda here and that it's a constructed kind of French world, but is also um, a world that is populated by the elite and not by the kinds of working class people and working class lives and even the very presence of work that she's interested in. And also that Jacques Demy, of course, is interested too in his films. One of his radical moves is to make the musical something that can speak to these working class towns and these cities that are grappling with a changing modern world. Yeah, both, I think, of the shorts are very musical. They reminded me of Jacques Demy quite a bit, even though I don't think they had met yet, or maybe they had. But the musical of this one at the end of the song about summer dying. Oh, yes. Les belles de jour ne fleurissent que le jour. L'été ne fleurit que l'été. Hier, c'était la fête du soleil, c'était la fête, c'était l'été, l'été vermeil qui s'est fané. And then also in Au Saison, she like stages a whole dance number with the models on the grounds of the castle. It's sort of remarkable and like the colors are very demi. Not to, I mean, Varda's her own person, not to just equate her to her partner, but... But I think, I think Varda's influence on Demi um, is probably spoken about less than it should be. And I think you're absolutely right that those stage dance scenes in these local settings, um, that song and that song that was written, right, by Georges Delarue um, for the short film. Um, but so, yeah. she was thinking uh, like so musically about these films that 
I, I have a feeling the French tourist office is not expecting um, a kind of musical interpretation of either of these projects. And, and she really did in the same way that um, some of my favorite Jacques Demy scenes are when he is staging a dance number on location. You have that sense of it being filmed in a real world that is suddenly exploding with music and other things. And I do think that's something that we see in all of these three films um, by Varda that we're looking at today. Both kind of a documentary reflection of a place and a history and even, you know, a building or a way of doing something that, like the jousting, um, still goes on today in part because the film sustained that but also is is bringing something totally wacky or something more intellectual or philosophical into those spaces that isn't necessarily organically there. Um, and that she's able to bring those two things together is, is pretty incredible. Agreed. I think that's an amazing note to end on. Thank you, Jake, so much for coming on. And thank you all for listening. Um, if you want to get in touch, we do have an email address. It's agnesbyalma at gmail.com or agnesbyalma at gmail.com. <laughs> uh, and we also have an Instagram account at agnesbyalma. So yeah, please also subscribe and review. Uh, I'm new to podcasting, but I'm told that that does good things for our visibility and dealing with algorithms so yeah that would be great if you could do that thank you thank you for uh including me in this and and encouraging me to rewatch the punk court for the first wow. time in a while it was that was really fun and there's no one i'd like to talk about varda with more than you oh that means a lot thank you so much for coming on and there's many more films to go so please come back yeah that would be really fun la fin de la fête la fin